We've been in a sermon series in the book of Acts for five months. And I don't know if we've ever done a series this long. It's probably going to go longer than ever before because we're only nine chapters in to a 28-chapter book called Acts, which is the story of the early church. Don't worry. We're going to cover a ton of ground this week. But what we've been saying every week as we read the story of the early church in the Greco-Roman world spreading out from Jerusalem into the Gentiles, we're reading the stories of the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit moving in a time of redemptive history that you live in right now in 2023. So one of the worst things we can do with the book of Acts is distance ourselves from it because we go, well, this is a one-time moment in the history of the church and God doesn't do cool stuff like that anymore. We've kind of got on the backside of that. Like, it's great to read this and learn from it, but don't believe too big about what God could do in our day. Absolutely not. We live in the same era, the times of refreshing that come on the backside of repentance. That's the way Peter preached it. And so we're reading this story every week going, how does this collide with Auburn Community Church in 2023? And what would it look like for us to have bold faith and believe God for more? And today's passage is one of the most important passages in all of the book of Acts for you to have a deep theological understanding of, but also a deep understanding of the application of the truths that are going to be brought today. Before we jump into the scriptures, I want to give you the title. The title is called, The Blood is Not Done. The Blood is Not Done. I want to talk about the blood of Jesus And when I say the blood is not done, I do not mean that more needs to be shed. The sacrifice that Jesus paid for us on the cross, it was paid in full. When he said it is finished, he is talking about the wrath of God that has been unleashed on him. The New Testament calls it the the propitiation for our sins, which just means full payment. There is no need to ever add to what happened on the cross to be forgiven or saved by God. At the same time, the blood is still active. The blood is still speaking. The book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And when you understand the blood of Jesus and how it applies to your life, you understand that it's not this moment in history that you simply look back on. It's this opportunity we're given as believers to allow things that we would have previously kept hidden and under-addressed and expose them in the presence of God, knowing that the blood of Jesus is still reaching, it is still exposing, and it is still changing you and me from the inside out in a process called sanctification. And there's a moment in Acts 10 and chapter 11 that we're going to read about today where the apostle Peter comes to this unbelievable realization of how much he has underestimated the blood. And my hope and my prayer is that at Auburn Community Church today, there would be this wake-up call, this moment where you're kind of sobered up in the presence of God, and you go, hold on, I thought I knew what the blood of Jesus was all about, forgiving my sin and making my relationship with God right and sealing me for all of eternity. But there is so much more to what Jesus was doing on the cross. And when Peter has this moment, he's kind of blown away by everything that's being revealed to him all at once. And I kind of hope that a lot of us are leaving church today to brunch or to lunch or to dinner, wherever you're going after this, and our faces are are a little bit dumbfounded by how much we didn't know the blood of Jesus will expose and transform about our hearts and lives. Are y'all ready to study the word of God today? Did you bring your Bible? I'm fired up about this. If you brought your Bible at all of our locations, hold it up. Overflow, hold it up in the lobby. Hold it up. Hold it up high. This is beautiful. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Yes, we are moving from Acts 9 to Acts 10. The same week we are celebrating nine years as a church and moving into year number 10. This is crazy. So crazy. In fact, when we were singing King of My Heart earlier in this gathering, I was reminded that six years ago today, 
That song was brand new. We sang it at Ham Wilson Arena. And I brought a brand new sermon series to our church that I'd never preached before. And I was like, I got an idea for a series, but I think it's more than a series. I think it's going to become a rallying cry for us. The new series is called Jesus Wins. That was six years ago. August 20th was the, was the last time August 20th fell on a Sunday. So I just see so much aligning between that moment and this moment. And I believe God's going to use this scripture in a powerful way. Here's the issue that we have to tackle today, though. Acts chapter 10 has 48 verses. And you can't read those 48 verses without reading the first 18 verses of the very next chapter. So we got a lot of scripture to digest, and we're going to read all of it. And when I say we, I don't mean me and you follow along. I mean we, as in you're going to read the word of God at church today for yourself and then hear the sermon that's applied to your life. I'm nervous about doing this because it's a lot. But the reason why we are doing this is more than that it's a long passage. Let's give Miles a break. It's that we truly believe there's a new level of spiritual maturity that happens in your life when you go from hearing sermons about the Bible to reading the word of God for yourself and knowing that you have the tools to apply this to your own life and not just apply it like it's a machine, but have a real relationship with a relational God who primarily speaks to you from the scriptures. I believe God can speak to you in a still small voice or in a moment or during a song or through another person. Absolutely. But make no mistake about it. The primary way the voice of God goes out in our lives is through what's written in the Holy Scriptures. And so few of us have ever gotten the active reps of reading the Bible for ourselves. We've gotten so good at letting the expert or the next sermon or, or the next teaching tell us things about God. And I'm all about that. I do it once a week. And pretty much what I do all week long is listen to sermons and read commentaries from other people who have preached sermons about the passages that I'm looking at next. I'm all for deep study. I'm all about that. But there is something different about a Christian who knows how to go into a room with the word of God and read it, and have an active relationship with the Lord. And so at ACC, our heart is how do we equip our people to do that? And how do we remind our people how powerful and active the Word of God is? You know, recently we were struggling with some behavioral issues with our daughters. It's putting it lightly. And I was like, you know what I've been neglecting? I have been neglecting reading their Bibles to them at night, because we're supposed to do that every night. But parents of young kids, you know how this is? It's like, oh, we can take tonight off. They're exhausted. I'm exhausted. Oh, we can take tonight off because the last thing I need to do is open a Bible after what I did. Like you have those moments where you're like, yeah, we'll put that off. And I was noticing I was going four nights at a time and coming back to it. I'm going, we're going to commit. We're not going to miss a night. And I'm telling you, just, just getting some of the stories of the scripture in you, even if you don't exactly know how they apply and all the little nuances of this and this and this, I'm telling you, this thing's alive and active. And there's a real God using the truths that we are reading about. So Acts chapter 10 is a story about God giving two men two different visions that require the other one's vision to interpret it. One of them's Peter, the apostle, the, the rock that Jesus said, I'm gonna build my church on his confession. And one of them is a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And you're gonna read about Cornelius's vision and then Peter's vision and then how it all gets explained and what happens. It is 48 verses long. I want you to read it in your own Bible. If you have your own Bible in front of you, any of you don't, even if you don't have your own Bible, yes, we're going to have it on the screen, but it might be easier to get the Bible app out on your phone. Just because if you're like me, you lose focus while you're reading something this longer and you want to know where you can come back to it. What's going to pop up on the screen is just going to keep scrolling the entire time. It's four minutes and 15 seconds. 
with no pad or music in the background at any of our locations. This could be super awkward. And if this goes horrible, it's okay. I just won't do it again. But I think it could be powerful to stop mid-sermon and not just let me keep talking, but let you guys have time to read the word of God for yourself. So I'm gonna count down from five and then we're gonna read the scripture. So y'all ready for this? Some of y'all look really excited. Some of y'all look real nervous. I'm on the second crowd. Five, four, three, two, one. Read Acts chapter 10 for yourself. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I just pray that the story we laid eyes on would move in a way that exposes spaces in our minds and hearts that we have unknowingly left closed off to you. Or maybe we knew that we were closing them off to you. We were just too uncomfortable to know what to do. I pray that we would be humbled by the invitation to be grafted in to your people, Israel, the Jews. God, speak through this story. Help us to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, how was it? Anybody not finish? Anybody like, oh, some slow readers. That's how I am. Uh, I'm like, please, I'll, I'll lose focus like five different times and need to, you'll, you'll have time to pick back up. It's about all the time we had to fit into this sermon with all the other details that are going on in this day. But don't worry if you didn't understand something or if you didn't finish it, because Acts chapter 11 is a recap of everything you just read. That's why I said, you got to read this to know what's happening in the next scene. But before we look at Acts 11, let's just hit on a few details of what you just read. You read about a Roman centurion, not a Jew, a Roman centurion named Cornelius who lived in a city called Caesarea. That's about 30 miles north of where Peter is in Joppa. And Caesarea is named after, you guessed it, Caesar, very Roman place. But yet he's a God-fearer and a worshiper of the God of Israel. And he demonstrates this by giving gifts to the poor, by alms, by having fixed times of prayer that go along with the Jewish people. That's why he's praying at three in the afternoon and he has a vision. And his vision tells him through an angel, you need to send for a man named Simon called Peter who's at a man named Simon's house. Don't let that confuse you. Over by the sea, he's at a beach house apparently in Joppa and you need to get him. At the same time, not the same time, sorry. The next day at 12 o'clock, Peter is praying and has a vision. Now, why does Cornelius have a vision at three and then Peter does at 12? Because in the daily Jewish practice, you had fixed hour prayer times at 9 a.m., 12 p.m., and 3 p.m. And throughout the day, this is what happens in the book of Acts over and over again. It's like they were going to the temple to pray. Why were they doing that? Because they did it three times a day. And if you weren't in Jerusalem, it was still a good idea to observe at these exact same times. So Peter would go on the roof of his house, probably facing Jerusalem, think Daniel in the book of Daniel, to have his prayer time, except Peter takes a little nap. He says he fell into a trance, but I'm like, okay, Peter, you did like we do. You started praying, you got tired, lunch was still being made. You're like, I'm gonna get in a quick power nap right before this. And he has this crazy vision. Now I gotta pause right there and just point this out. Very few, if any people within the sound of my voice right now, have fixed rhythmic hours of prayer in their days. Some of us do it in the morning, like with our quiet time. Some of us wait for a time where we can go and maybe we have a secret space to go get along with God. But I think it's powerful to go to a space specifically to pray. Like, why are you going over there? Just to pray. Well, aren't you going to get like more done? Is there going to be some music? Is there going to be maybe 
But the main ambition of it is to pray. That's part of the reason why we're doing seven nights of prayer. The exact same time, going, hey, why are you guys going up here? We're just going up here to pray. Because God does special things when you spend specific time in prayer. And that's not to say that as soon as you show up, there will be a vision that has this kind of magnitude to it. Not at all. But it is to say, if you make space for God, God will fill it. Amen? And so they're, they're praying and they have these two visions. Well, I want to show, show you what happens with Peter's vision because he's going to repeat it in Acts chapter 11. So if you just finished Acts 10, go to Acts chapter 11, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. It says, The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So they got that good news that the Holy Spirit fell on them just like it fell on the Jews during Pentecost. They're in, they're all repenting and they're coming to know Jesus. This is great, right? Wrong. Verse two. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of an uncircumcised men and ate with them? Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I, I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, this is not for me, but for everyone attached to our church who is passionate about hunting, this is your favorite verse in the Bible, guys. This is it. Like some of y'all were in your own reading time. You're like, I haven't read the Bible in a while, but I need more of this because I'm ready to go grab my bow or whatever season it is. I don't think it is. Sorry, I'm trying to learn all the lingo. But some of you guys are reading this and you're like, this is my passage. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Why is he disagreeing with God? Yes, I would get up, kill and eat. So if that's how you're feeling, you're pumped up about that. I'm with you. Never, never really hunted before, but I know we have a lot of guys and, and, and women in this church who are passionate about that. That's great. But what's happening here is a violation of a law that Peter has been following since he was born. And so he will, like Peter does, disagree with the voice of God three different times. Watch this, verse eight. Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. We'll come back to that later. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as it had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? That's a theme of the book of Acts, by the way. People acknowledging that even if they try, they can't stand in God's way. And I don't know who that's individually for, but there's some of you who are arm wrestling with God about what he's clearly revealing. And you need to know at the end of the day, he's going to win. And he's going to show you that his way is better. But the question that pops up when you're reading this is, how does Peter go from arm wrestling with God about dietary laws to understanding, oh, this is about all nations being invited into the global story of God? Like, how do you go from nothing impure has ever entered my mouth to, 
oh my goodness, they're receiving the Holy Spirit the same way we did. We're in the same family as them. The blood of Jesus has purchased them too. Everybody's invited, everybody's in. How do you go from one to the other? Here's how. Peter has that dream and it says he's wondering what it means and he's thinking about it and then these people arrive at the house and they're like, hey, centurion named Cornelius wants to see you 30 miles away from here. What is Peter? As a good Jew, what's his knee-jerk reaction to that invitation? No, I can't come. Because to enter into the house of a Gentile and share a meal would make me ceremonially unclean. Oh, I can't go. Because it would make me impure. Going into the house of one who is impure, do not call anything unclean that I have called pure. Peter recognizes this is not about a switch up of dietary laws. This is about God using a real example that he already had the tools to know what to do with to go, this is about a category I've placed on humanity that God is about to shatter. It all goes back to when Jesus said in Mark 7, hey, it's not the food or drink you put into your body that defiles you. Jesus gives a pretty disgusting example. He goes, that goes into your stomach and back out. You're like, thanks for that. And then he says, he says, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. What, what, what comes from within, sexual immorality, malice and envy and greed and all these things, they come from within a sinful spirit. So what Jesus came to accomplish wasn't just an adjustment to our external behavior and new rules to follow. He came to accomplish an internal transformation that's happening in Peter as he discovers this transformation that's available on the backside of the blood isn't just for God's chosen people, Israel. It's for anyone and everyone who would come by grace through faith. And he's blown away by this. Look at what happens at the end of the narrative in Acts 11. It says, when they heard this, they, the people who were like criticizing Peter, they had no further objections. And they praised God saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's one of my favorite verses in all of Acts, by the way. You can hear the surprise in their voice. They're like, what? Even to them. There's, well, we can't deny it because that happened and that happened and that, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And you can feel the surprise in their voices, but you can also feel it in Peter. If you go back to chapter 10, verse 34, you don't got to turn there, I'll read it. It says, then Peter began to speak. It's the first thing Peter says to Cornelius in his sermon. I now realize, you need to circle that phrase. There are some things in your walk with God that five years ago you couldn't handle. And right now there's an awakening moment that happens. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. He says, oh, it is true. God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation. Please understand this and put it in the bank of your mind for forever. The word nation in the New Testament is not about country. It's about people group. The word is ethne, where we get the word ethnic group. It means any group united by a common language and culture. Tribalism, like groups of people that are united according to something. They are now accepted into the family of God because of what? The good news of peace. That is the gospel message of Jesus. The blood is not done. The blood is not simply the payment of sin for individual believers to be reconciled to God. The blood of Jesus works two ways, just like the cross works two ways. It's vertical, but it's also horizontal. 
And so the blood of Jesus hasn't just knocked down the wall between you and God. Now he's your heavenly father. Now you're a son. Now you're his daughter. Now you get to walk unashamed in this life and live in heaven forever. He knocked down that wall, but he also knocked down a similar wall when he knocked down the wall between you and your neighbor and the person who lives on the furthest nation on the planet. Ephesians 2, Paul fully fleshes this out. He's like, the blood knocked down two barriers. It brought us to God, but it also reconciled us to our common man. And peace is a two-way street. And so today, as I was reading this passage, I was like, man, that's a lot of information. That's a lot of powerful truths that I can unpack through this sermon. I legitimately, when trying to think about how to apply this to our church, I legitimately have three full sermons where I was like, I could go that route and talk about this because that needs to be talked about at ACC. But then I have to talk about this because that's point blank, the meaning of the passage. But then if I don't talk about this, none of this will ultimately matter. And so, however far I am into this sermon right now, I'm going to preach all three of those sermons that God gave me. You guys don't look excited. You're like, I, I don't know how long it's going. We'll just go until the 5 p.m. tonight. It'll be great, guys. I, I legitimately, with all the time I have left, want to squeeze out of this amazing story everything that needs to be applied to your life personally and show you how this moment in the history of the church could be a threshold moment in your life. So, with as much as I can possibly do, please understand that each one of these three points needs an entire sermon to make total sense. But I cannot preach these, this passage without making some of these points. Are y'all excited to hear how it's going to apply to your life? Somebody say, the blood is not done. The blood is not done. The blood is not done. Okay, all three points finish what that sentence begins. Start with number one. The blood is not done exposing your bend towards superiority. That's what happens in this story but it's what needs to happen in your life if you're a follower of Jesus. The blood is not done exposing your bend towards superiority. You know, in our sinful human state, we will always have a preference for homogenous, like-minded relationships. It's just in you as a human being. You enjoy being around people who look like you and think like you and believe like you and vote like you because without the Holy Spirit, you're really, really good at worshiping you. And when the blood comes into your story, the blood covers you, but it also exposes you. Because where the blood is shed for all nations to be joined together in one family, there is no longer any room to spend our lives searching for the comfort of homogenous relationships under addressing our own preference towards superiority. And anytime you have a conversation like this in church, everybody gets super nervous because our cultural narrative on issues related to what I'm talking about right now is so harmful and threatening that especially the last couple of years, we've made it our ambition more about covering what people see in us externally than looking internally and seeing if there's an issue. So all of us are really just trying to avoid being outed as somebody who doesn't get it. And in our culture of tolerance and championing everybody, it's like, even if you don't think about what's happening on the inside of you, just champion everybody. Just love everybody. Just prove that you have a friend who's from another ethnic group. Just post a picture that, that, that shows that you are somehow awakened to this cultural moment and you'll get a pass. Everybody will think you're good. And when the ambition of our culture is just look good enough for everybody else to prove that you're not the problem. No, I love everybody. I'm not part of the problem. They're the problem. I don't have anything going on in me with superiority. They're the ones who choose superiority. From whatever background you come from, however old you are, whatever color 
color you are, whatever country you're from, it is in your bend sinfully as a human being to prefer the opinion and the thought process of people who look like and think like you. And so we're all nervous to even look under the hood and find out what's happening. But there's bad news with that. And it's this, God cannot transform what you refuse to acknowledge. God will never transform what you refuse to look into. And so for a predominantly homogenous culture like Auburn, and this is true about our church in Birmingham and several other spaces as well, this is a really difficult topic to talk about because I think many of us have gotten so defensive to go, hey, I'm not, I'm not the problem. I don't have anything in me that, that, that's off with like loving everybody or being, I'm for everybody. Yeah, but when you do that, you close yourself off on the inner journey that God wants to take you on. And you do that if you're in our church and you are a minority and you are from a different group and you do, you're hearing everything I'm saying and you're going, yeah, I agree, Miles, you need to preach that. It's the, no, but before you do that, you, God cannot transform what you refuse to acknowledge in you. And the good news I have from Acts chapter 11 is that if you have superiority issues, you have good company. The church in Acts is so romanticized in our day. Everybody's like, I want to be like the Acts church. They were so welcoming. They were so loving. They gave so much money and people are getting saved and spiritual gifts. And it was just off the charts every day. Guys, when Peter got back from Cornelius's house and they found out, hey, the Gentiles, the non-Jews are repenting and turning to God. They were not waiting with a party or a worship service. They were waiting with criticism. Read this. The apostles and believers throughout Judea, that's the area around Jerusalem, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? Y'all, this is the early church. This is Peter getting invited to a lunch with a godly human being and going, I can't go because he's, he's unclean but the dream is telling me I should go anyway. And then when he gets back to his church, they're all going, what did you do? I don't care that they repented. You ate with a Gentile? Seeing how far they had to go, I think gives us a little bit of freedom and breathing room, not to feel good about ourselves, but to look inwardly from a safe posture and go, hey, if you got some superiority issues, welcome to the club. If you think you're better than your family members, Welcome to the club. If you got this part of you that just thinks everybody else is the problem, and, and, if, and if they would just fix the way they're talking about this issue, and it's so, it's so far reaching and so many wide issues that we could get into here, I want to keep this in a general sense about what the passage is about, which is God exposing the human heart. When Jesus said, what defiles you comes from within, he was turning the tide on the religion of his day that said, just take care of the external laws. And he's going, no, the external laws are pointing you to a way to be transformed from within. And I think at ACC, I think across all of our locations, the first step we need to make when it comes to relational reconciliation from whomever you're, div you're different than, rich and poor, socioeconomic class, ethnic status, gender, sexual orientation, all the things that divide so much, I don't think our knee-jerk reaction to that conversation needs to be, Oh, wow, if they would just, it needs to be, hold on, hold on, hold on. Is there anything in me that the blood needs to expose first so that I can be a part of transformation and not be a part of the fire burning further in the wrong direction? And let me be as vulnerable as I can on this stage. I am so frustrated and angry about what has happened in our country the past couple of years from multiple different perspectives. And as a Christian pastor in Auburn, Alabama, 
there are very real things that are being taught in schools across our country, promoted on social media, and definitely promoted from the White House, that I have a hard time reining myself in to not get in front of you on a Sunday and just getting you angry about what we're living in right now. But for me, here's what I've noticed in me. The stacking and the domino effect of all these cultural issues have exposed some things in my heart that are like, hey, you say, I love those people, but you need to make sure you mean the first part of that sentence because I don't believe that you do. And so that, that's what's happening in me from a personal journey right now. And I'm going, well, if that's happening to me at 34, about to be 35 years old in a couple of weeks, it's probably happening to a lot of people in our church. My ask from this passage is that you would ask the question, who is it that it is unbearable for you to go to that space of unconditional love toward? For whatever reason, however bad you've been hurt, however angry you are, however, who is it? And let's make this whole message about the blood of Jesus exposing on the inside our own bend towards superiority. And when Jesus does that, I know you hear that and you go, well, that's not gonna solve this. It's not gonna make this better. That's not, trust me, this moment in the book of Acts transformed a lot that you don't see in the individual moment that is happening right now. So the blood of Jesus is not done, but for the blood of Jesus to have an impact on the inside of your life, it begins in the transformation of your bend towards superiority. That's the most convicting of the three points. How'd I do? How did we do? You still with me? Okay, I can breathe. Point number two, the blood is not done exposing your bend towards superiority. Number two, the blood is not done reaching the nations with salvation. Reaching the nations with salvation. Remember I told you Acts 10 is not about countries. It's about ethnic groups. This is the second moment in the book of Acts that the gospel has reached beyond the people of Israel to a Gentile. First one was the Ethiopian eunuch that we talked about a few chapters ago. But now you have the church's mind opened to all that God is doing in this specific moment. And the way I want you to read the word salvation is in verse 14. This is when Peter was describing to the church of Jerusalem why he went to eat at that house. He said, he said Cornelius heard from the angel that he, Peter, will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be what? Saved. This is one of the most important verses for your understanding of God's global story of salvation being sent out to the Gentiles. Who's Cornelius? Roman centurion, God-fearer, worshiper. He gives to the poor. He does fixed hour prayer times. He probably knows a lot about the Jewish law. He's even heard about this Jesus character who apparently just changed the game for a certain sect of Judaism, but yet he's not saved yet. Peter's gonna come and he's gonna tell you how you and your household will be saved. What does that mean? That means even for someone with a heart of worship toward the one true God, there has to be an articulation of the gospel saving message of the kingdom of God to them in their language for them to be saved. Now, God can do this a myriad of different ways, and we've heard about God moving through dreams and, and, and mysteriously in God's sovereign plan. He's going to save who he's going to save, absolutely. But the plan of God for the Gentiles to be saved is that people who have the message of Jesus get to the people who don't. This is Romans chapter 10. How can they believe in someone they haven't heard of? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how can someone preach to them unless they are sent? 
Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. ACC, the purpose of your life is to join up with God's global story of the glory of Jesus going out to the nations. Because if we don't get the story to them, they are not saved. There's no one who is innocent in another country who never hears the gospel message of Jesus. And it's like, well, surely they will end up in heaven, right? They never heard, they never had the opportunity. Like God's gonna understand that. The problem with that assumption is that you assume that man or that woman in that country is innocent. And the Bible teaches us that human beings based on the sin that lives on the inside of us are not innocent before a holy God. We are guilty by nature, which makes the power of what the blood of Jesus did all the more important to talk about and take to people who have never heard it. Think about it. If somebody's saved because they've never heard the gospel, what is the worst thing you could do for them? Tell them the gospel. That's not good news. That's bad news. Because now once you've heard it, you're now liable to what you have heard. And you might go to hell if you reject it. But before you were going to heaven because you didn't hear it. So I guess I should have just... No, guys, we have the message of salvation for all nations. This passage should cause all of us to go. There are people who are desperate for a relationship for the one true God. And they've never heard the good news of what the blood has accomplished for them. And we got to get this message to the ends of the earth. And that starts right here in Auburn, Alabama, where the whole world comes together to go to school, by the way to the furthest and hardest places to reach in the world. But if there's anything we want this church to exist for, it's that. I told y'all the first week we opened this building, I was like, y'all, we got to steward this well. This cannot be a nice building in Auburn, Alabama. That's already way too small. Nevertheless, a nice building in Auburn where we come together to have nice, comfortable services. And it's got all the aesthetics and it, it, it is beautiful. This is a battle station to send out warriors to the ends of the earth. Whether that be warriors to places like Washington, D.C. and New York City and Atlanta and to Birmingham and across the country or to Afghanistan and the hardest places to reach in the Himalayan mountains. This is what this church has got to exist to do. And y'all, I just do not say this to pat ourselves on the back. I say this to wake you up. I just don't know of another church that has 20% of the freshman class showing up at it. Like one-fifth of the incoming freshmen in Auburn were at this church on Thursday night. Now, if that intimidates you about, oh man, what are we gonna do? Trust me, I'm feeling that. But the other side of that is that that's not a, oh, yay us, we drew a lot of freshmen. That's a, hold up, we got about four, maybe five years for those who take a victory lap. We, we got about four or five years to get them trained up to know what they believe and who they are and where they're going. I don't know of another church that's positioned like we are to be a sending church. But we will not be ascending church if we don't wake up. We've got to wake up. College students, you got to wake up. Young professionals, you got to wake up. Young parents, you got to wake up. Empty nesters, you got to wake up. Retirees, you really got to wake up because you're going to see them real soon. Here's, here's what you need to wake up to. Waking up. I'm just saying, waking up to God's global story is essential to discovering your individual calling. Everybody makes their ambition in following Jesus, discovering my calling. I just wonder where am I called and what am I called to do? But we leave out the fact that, hey, this is a global story that has one ending. All nations, people groups, worshiping at the same throne, declaring that the lamb is worthy of honor and praise. And if nothing about your life is contributing toward that moment at the end of the story, guess what? Nothing about your life is in agreement with God's purpose for you individually. It's where all of our callings converge. It's where the stay-at-home mom and the lawyer and the doctor and the preacher 
and the parent and the student. It's where we all converge. It's one story about participating and partnering with God by the power of the Holy Spirit to see the throne room filled with every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's where a lot of our efforts in the, less, in the next few years are gonna go as a church. But that's where I wanna complement point number one with point number two. The reason why our culture's message about tolerance and kindness is so shallow is because it's just founded by human external behaviors. What does culture tell you right now? Love everybody, champion everybody, stay out of people's way, let them do them, you do you, love is love, whatever you wanna say. It's like all about just be loving, just be, you know what the Christian worldview is? It's not shallow and bleak, it's wide and deep. The Christian worldview is, hey, every tribe, tongue, and nation is gonna be brothers and sisters in the same kingdom in the same throne room, worshiping the one who shed his blood to bring us back into a right relationship with God. And so if you still got an issue with them, you got an issue with him because what he's done for this is brought you into the same family. And you're really not gonna like heaven if you don't let the blood expose your superiority. And you're really not gonna have a lot of reward to show for in heaven if you don't make your life about the purpose of God's glory going out among the nations. That's what we're all about. And that's where this passage, it's like the blood is so beautiful. God forgives me. It's yeah but it exposes you. Where am I believing lies of superiority and where in my heart have I not been in agreement with God about his glory going out among the nations? Number three, the blood is not done. Gotta start with number three though. Oh man, this is so good. You gotta hear this one. Don't, don't fade out on me now, guys. The blood is not done covering your most shameful sin. Everything about this sermon today hinges on your own understanding of God's grace and mercy on your own life in Christ Jesus. First John says, we love because he first loved us. Meaning you don't have the capacity to do the things I'm putting in front of you today if the love of God doesn't seep into the most secret and shameful things of your past right where you are. And you go, Miles, where are you getting this? From the Acts story. I'm getting this from Acts 11, verse 9, that says, The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was pulled up to heaven again. Anybody else think it's weird that this is Peter's third moment of having a three times back and forth conversation that's super important for his life? Weird, right? The night before Jesus died, most shameful sin he ever committed. He was warming himself by a charcoal fire, scripture says, and he was confronted three times. You know the rabbi, don't, you were with him, I saw you. You, I don't know the man, I don't know the man, I don't know the man. Rooster crows, what does Peter do? It says he went and he wept bitterly. That's as ashamed as the language can possibly make it. He can't even stomach it. I'm sure he was thinking about taking his own life for denying Jesus in his most needy moment. But then when Jesus rose, what did Jesus do? He cooked breakfast on a beach with a charcoal fire. There's only two charcoal fires in the Bible. One of them was the fire Peter was warming himself with. The second one was the fire Jesus was cooking with on the beach. And what did he say to Peter? Three questions. Simon Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my lambs. And Peter is reinstated as the rock that the church is built on. But apparently God doesn't stop at two moments. Apparently he's got a third one for Peter. Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Wait, what? 
I haven't eaten anything impure or unclean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. That statement needs to ring like a bell in your mind every time you are tempted to believe that because of the shame you are carrying, you cannot participate as a conduit of God's grace in the story of the kingdom of God today. That, that phrase in and of itself is like, Peter, you should know this better than anybody. Because the moment you thought you were the biggest failure, the moment you thought you were the most ashamed is a moment that I'm going to keep revisiting with you so that I can remind you I saw it and it's okay and you're still in it and I'm still using you and I'm still moving through you so if you're here today and you got secret stuff that you go man this is great to talk about the blood of Jesus exposing my problems with others or the blood of Jesus setting me on mission the problem with that is Satan will get you to never go to those deep levels if all you believe are the lies about your sins lately particularly your sins post saying yes to Jesus because we're really good at you using the blood to cover us before we know Jesus, but we're really bad at seeing that this is a start to finish sacrifice once for all, meaning that Jesus didn't just die for your BC sins. He's dying for the ones you don't even know you're committing right now. As you hear this sermon, you need to get to a bold level of belief and confidence before God that goes, God, if you can use a guy like Peter who let you down in the most important hinge point moment of the scriptures, then you can use me and I don't know what secrets you're carrying or shame you're carrying, but the best thing you can do with a sermon like this is tell that voice in your head, don't you dare call what God has called clean impure. Don't you dare call what God has called forgiven, judged and condemned. Don't you dare call the son or daughter of God who will spend eternity in heaven, a child of the devil who's a servant or a slave. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God because the Holy Spirit has sealed me. And what gives the Holy Spirit the right to seal me? My heart is covered in the blood. Just like the doors were covered with blood for the Passover, your heart is covered by the blood of Jesus if you trust him today. That's why we end the sermon taking communion every week. You can get your elements out for communion right now. If you didn't get one of those sets, you can just raise your hand. Even if you're in the lobby, even if you're in overflow, raise your hand high so they can see you. At all of our locations, we wanna make sure you're ready for this moment. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you wanna sit this one out, but we gotta have a moment. And we got these kneeling stations in the corner of the room, in this room that you can go and kneel and rip off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. But whatever this looks like for you, this is where we remember the body of Christ was broken for you and the blood of Jesus was shed for you. Husbands, this is your permission to pray over your wives. I believe today could be a game-changing moment for your family. And I believe it starts with letting the grace of God move in and through every part of your mind and heart that you've been ignoring and not exposing. So let's enjoy this time taking communion, but don't you dare take your attention off of what's happening in this room because we gotta lift up praise to God for what he's done. Let's take communion and then we'll sing.